Hello, and welcome back to the Director's Wall podcast. Uh, I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. Yes, I did almost forget my name right there. <laughs> and I'm uh, Brian Connolly. Yeah, that's the ticket. The All right. Guy. So examining a filmmaker's body of work, film by film, we're working our way through Coppola's career, and we are in like the peak, the peak Coppola, the 1970s. Last time we talked about some writer for hire jobs he did, The Way We Were and The Great Gatsby. Now we're back to him, writer, director with The Conversation. Some would say this is the peak. This, could, this is the peak. We've reached the top. Some would say this is the top. Yeah, um, there, there's a good argument for that. But of course, first we must talk about the Coppola wine of the episode. So AJ, you're having the claret? Yeah, I'm having the Diamond Collection 2017 Black Label Claret 1910 type Cabernet Sauvignon. Uh, we've had this yeah. before. We've had it recently. It's yeah. it's what's at the store. It's what's available. And, you know, I can't, can't go out hunting all over town for wine right now. For, for those listening at home, we live in uh, the great state of Texas. And guess what? We're number one in COVID in the country. <laughs> we're number one. We're Everything's number one. bigger in Texas. So we're staying home. Uh, the one I'm drinking is a new one for us. It's the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Chardonnay 2018. Uh, it's got a beautiful orange label. It stands out for sure on the shelf. So let me just read this as we do with all our new ones. Dramatic style, vibrant packaging, and fruit-forward smooth wines are the signatures of Francis Coppola Diamond Collection. Our Diamond Collection Chardonnay has juicy flavors of pears, tropical fruit, and citrus, with alluring aromas of spice and toasted oak, and finishes with a light, creamy texture. Delicious with shellfish, poultry, and appetizers. I love this, and appetizers, like if it's a or a cocktail wiener, it'll go fine with whatever whatever you have. Mozzarella sticks, potato skins. Yeah, take this into the next TGI Fridays and see if it pairs with all the appetizers. Uh, learn more about our wines at francisfordcopolawinery.com. I got to say, AJ, you got to try this one if you can ever find it. I think it's the best one that we've had. I'm very interested in trying a tropical fruit wine. It's really good. And it, it's great because it's not too sweet but it's not too dry. Like it really is like a good balance. Uh, and it's, I think, I think I may end up drinking this whole bottle while we do this. Cause I tend to drink white wine fast anyways, but look, I'm already pouring my second glass and we're still in our intro. So we're in trouble. I believe it's your turn to do the plot. Yes, it is. All right. So the conversation released in 1974, a bit of background first. This is, a passion project for Coppola. He came up with the idea in the mid 60s. And it was one of after he got his deal with Seven Arts Warner Brothers. It was one of the three movies that he announced he was going to do right after You're a Big Boy Now. And it kept not happening. Then he made The Godfather the biggest movie ever. Paramount really wants him to make Godfather 2. And so he agrees to do Godfather 2. But first, he gets to do the conversation. So that is uh, stars Gene Hackman as Harry Call, who is a, a surveillance 
expert for hire. Uh, it starts out with this really impressive overhead shot of uh, Union Square in San Francisco. It's like a, it's like a telephoto lens. I think it's a slow push in on this crowd. It's just people going about their day. There's a mime going around annoying everyone. And the camera slowly zooms in on two people whose conversation we actually hear, but then on the Gene Hackman. And we see slowly that this young couple is being uh, recorded, being surveilled by Gene Hackman and a team of uh, buggers of like surveillance spy people. And there are guys up in the windows of buildings with what look like sniper rifles, but actually they are shotgun microphones. And there's even, they even have like a scope with crosshairs on them that they point at the couple walking around. Uh, John Cazale plays Gene Hackman's uh, like assistant. His name is Stan. And he's the guy in the van monitoring everything. Back at Gene Hackman's uh, headquarters, he assembles all the uh, sound recordings together using like three different reel-to-reel uh, -reel tapes of all the different recordings and then mixes them together to make one recording. It's a really cool sequence with you seeing all the reel-to-reel -reel tapes spinning and syncing up together and he's isolating out the background sound to just focus on the dialogue. And John Cazale is there and he wants to know like, hey, who, who are these people? Why are, why are we recording them? And Harry Call says he doesn't know, he doesn't care. He just records it, hands over the tapes. That's just what his job is. And he lives alone. He's very guarded of his privacy. He doesn't have a listed telephone number. His landlord sneaks into his apartment and leaves him a birthday gift, and it upsets him <laughs> very much. He plays the saxophone along to jazz music, and that's pretty much the only kind of entertainment we see him having. Uh, he goes to turn in the tapes to the director. We assume the head of some corporation has never said what he's the director of or what this business is. But the director isn't there and he has to meet with the director's assistant played by a young Harrison Ford playing a very like shady underling. There's just something suspicious about him. And when Harry's not looking, he tries to grab the tapes and gives him the money. And then Gene Hackman abruptly grabs the package of tapes out of Harrison Ford's hands and they tussle with it. And it, you, Harrison Ford has this look of real surprise and shock on his face. It's, uh, it's this really cool, it's, it's a really genuine moment. Uh, so by now, Harry has figured out that the, what's on the tapes might be something dangerous. And we also learn that in one of his past jobs, a recording he made then possibly led to the death of a whole family, including the woman and children. And so he's listening to the tapes, trying to isolate like what is actually going on with the conversation. And he hears the man say to the woman, it's Frederick Forrest and Cindy Williams. 
he hears Frederick Forrest say, he'd kill us if he had the chance. So now Hackman knows, like, murder is probably going to happen if he turns in these tapes. Then he goes to a surveillance convention. It's like Comic-Con, but for uh, people that... <laughs> like bug other people and everyone has their own booth set up and they're showing off their different gadgets and devices. And we meet Harry's rival, this guy named Moran, who's played really, really well by Alan Garfield. Is like, he's this loud mouth, like showman. He demonstrates his product. He seems just like a, like a circus barker. He seems like a really annoying guy to be around. And he has also hired away uh, John Cazale, who was kind of fed up with Harry because he wouldn't let him in on what was going on, on his techniques or anything. And Harry, a very private person, then agrees to go out on the town with, uh, with a group of people from the convention. They go back to his warehouse. That's where we learn that uh, you know, Harry has a past where that maybe led to the murder of a woman and children. One of the models from the convention has come back with them. Uh, she sleeps with Harry and then he wakes up and the tapes are gone. And so he figures that she stole the tapes. And then he gets a phone call from Harrison Ford saying, we have the tapes, just come and get your money. So he goes to the director's office and the director is, you guessed it, Robert Duvall in an uncredited performance. He's listening to the tapes and he can't believe like what he's hearing. And he tells Harrison Ford, just because you keep playing it for me doesn't mean it's true. And he sees a picture of Cindy Williams on the wall so he can safely assume that this is his wife. And he's so concerned about what's going to happen that he goes to the hotel. Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest mentioned in their conversation, he checks into the room next to theirs and drills a hole to uh drills a hole to listen to what's going on in there and he hears sounds of a struggle and he freaks out and hides under the covers and like passes out basically and he wakes up goes to he breaks into the hotel room next door and finds the entire apartment is miraculously clean like spotlessly so and he goes into the bathroom and the shower curtain is closed and he pulls back the shower curtain and nothing is there. And then he flushes the toilet and blood gurgles up out of the toilet, spills over all over the floor. And then he goes back to the director's office. The security guys won't let him in. And then we find out that actually the director has been murdered. And he looks inside the limousine. And there's Cindy Williams looking over papers. Her and Frederick Forrest are being like interviewed by reporters. And also Harrison Ford is there too. We don't know if he was in on it. Maybe we'll, we'll talk about that later. And then Harry, back at his apartment, gets a phone call from Harrison Ford saying, we know you know, don't get involved any further. We'll be listening. And so then Harry takes apart his whole apartment. He takes apart all his things. He smashes a statue of the Virgin Mary looking for a bug inside and he tears up the floorboards. And when he can't find anything, he just sits down and plays the saxophone. The end. What a good movie. What a very good movie. This movie, so this, I think this was the first Coppola movie I ever saw. I think I watched this in middle school from the library. 
and because it was because it's it's not really an R-rated movie. Like it kind of like what I don't know what this movie's rated. It, but it's like it's like, like I, I felt like it was more appropriate for me to watch this over The Godfather as like a twelve-year-old. And I remember really, really loving it even then. I remember being so struck by it even as a twelve-year-old, being like, "Man, that's a good movie." And the image, and like I probably haven't watched this since then. And it was amazing how many of these images still stuck in my head. Like I remember the overflowing blood toilet. I remember like being really taken aback by that when I first saw it. And I definitely remember the last shot, the last shot of him just ripping up his apartment, that sad last, you know, the camera going back and forth in his destroyed apartment. Like this is a movie that I think it kind of creeps up on you. Like on paper, it kind of seems sort of straightforward, but when you watch it, it just, there's so much, it's a quiet movie, but there's so much going on. It really, and truly is. Uh, I love this movie. Uh, I love it more and more each time I watch it. This is Coppola's own favorite of his movies. Yeah, there are layers and layers of this movie. It's a character study. There's all the stuff about surveillance, which like the technology is out of date, but themes about like privacy and the moral implications of that are really applicable today with you know our phones listening to us so they can advertise stupid stuff the next time i open up my web browser they could totally remake this movie now like they shouldn't but they totally could and it would still be effective though they shouldn't do that but i'm just saying like you're right it's like sadly this kind of version of uh, invasion of privacy and this sort of like paranoia still exists you know you know, 50 years later, or what, you know, 40 some, you know, 48 years later. Um, one of my favorite Gene Hackman roles too. And this was, he had won the Oscar for French Connection in 71 or 471 and 72, is that right? Yep. But like, this isn't sort of the usual kind of confident Gene Hackman that we, we see in most movies. Cause in most movies, he's kind of like an angry, confident guy. In this one, he's an angry, quiet guy. <laughs> And it's, it's great to see actors like him, like really kind of, like di- playing it down isn't the right word, it's just, but playing it differently and playing this kind of more of this introverted person, which he clearly isn't in real life and has never really played in most movies. Usually he's like the way he is in like Unforgiven or whatever, where he's like the loudest person in the room. Uh, and he's, it, he just, you get so, he gets so into his character and, and as, an, as a viewer, you get so, it's such a fascinating character like it's just like the way he is the all his little things it just sort of builds to be like a very believable type of person this film is definitely a character study it's told entirely from his point of view so like he's either in every shot or we're seeing what he's seeing there's no scenes of like john cazell on his own it's just solely we're with harry and it's it's such a low-key performance like gene hackman said it was hard to play because the character was so like just downbeat that if if uh, he ever got excited about anything gene hackman knew well he was playing the character wrong so it was he said it was a depressing character to play is he a method actor was he would he like be in character on set do you know what he like I don't know. I feel like he's not, but I don't know for sure. 
this movie being set in San Francisco and the the Dirty Harry movie, the first Dirty Harry movie had just come out that was set in San Francisco with a character named Harry. And Gene Hackman was just in a crime proto action movie where he was a detective and now he's playing a detective like in San Francisco. And that might give you the wrong expectations of this movie. But there is a, a, a mystery, a, a detective element to it. And though his, he is a surveillance, he's a spy for hire, his job isn't to put puzzle pieces together. But then that's exactly what he does as he gets caught up in the contents of this conversation and the implica- implications of that. And he keeps saying that it's just a job. He doesn't care what the people are talking about. He doesn't care who the people are. But through his actions, we know really he does. And it's an interesting, It's. it took me a while to realize with San Francisco because it's not, I feel the typical San Francisco because it's such a paranoid character study. You're not seeing sweeping shots of the Golden Gate Bridge or the downtown and Alcatraz or the Bay or anything. Like you're not really. Yeah, there's no shots of the like Lombard Street, the big hills. The, the not, there's no Presidio. It, it's and, a very inconspicuous movie. Like, it it's just suggests that it's San Francisco. I only know for sure because I listen to the commentary tracks. <laughs> it it also suggests that it's Christmas time. There's like a Christmas tree in in uh, the background of one scene. But it doesn't it doesn't make a, a big deal that that it is Christmas. No, it's it's uh, I, I think it's that kind of like closed in feeling which really adds to the tension of the movie. It, you're just with this character in his little apartment in his sort of sad, empty, like weird, like their office is really weird. Like his office is like this big, empty, almost like a loft, this huge, like it seems like the whole floor of a building, but he's only using like this one little corner, this fenced in corner of this whole floor of a building. And then when he's in like having meetings, it's all these like cr- like kind of modern skyscraper things, but you're only seeing it, like you're not seeing any, there's no big wide shots uh, other than the first shot. Like the first shot is this big, great wide shot that you slowly zoom in on people. But then once you're in on those people, the rest of the movie, you're kind of like on a people level. There's no big crane shots or anything <laughs> like that that like clues you in to anything as in terms of location. And I really like that. And and it, this is also, I think, one of Coppola's most stylish movies. Like, even though it's a little more, it's definitely a lower key movie than The Godfather. But in a way, I feel this, it, because of that, he is doing more interesting stuff with the camera in this than I think he was even in Godfather. There's lots of, like, it's more, it's showier. It's a little more like, let me do this interesting little camera thing. Let me do this little movement. Let me just do this kind of shot. And, and, and I think it's good to have that for a movie like this where there's not as much action. It's not an action movie. There's no high drama. It's all just sort of like internal in Gene Hackman's paranoid mind. Or just, it's like, you're, it's, you're watching a guy listen to a tape over and over again. So you're going to have to do some camera tricks to make that exciting for normal people to watch. So Haskell Wexler, the great Haskell Wexler, was the original cinematographer on the conversation. And he shot the, uh, the opening scene and then was fired. He didn't like any of the locations that Coppola had picked out. He didn't want to use the camera the way Coppola had wanted. And they just argued so much that Coppola fired him and hired Bill Butler, who shot everything after the uh, the opening scene the cinematography that copeland bill butler does for 
the rest of the movie is totally is totally the right style the right approach the camera it's it's in these like medium shots and it's just long static shots that start before a character enters a room enters the shot and then someone will leave and the camera will stay still and it only moves over once once the camera sort of realizes that the action is now off to the side and then there'll be this very self-conscious pan over to the left or to the right so we can follow the action but the camera wants to be inconspicuous because it's like it is surveilling the scene and doesn't want to be caught so it moves as little as possible and it stays far back and and i love it i love it and i love i love to the very simple piano uh, score by uh, david shire keeping it in the family at the time uh his sister's husband at the time and it's just like a great it almost feels like the way it plays in a lot of the scenes to me reminds me of like it just almost seems like it's playing it's like almost seems like someone's there playing a record of piano music like in the corner of your room it can have it kind of bounces around in the scenes and really it kind of adds to the the space into the, em- the emptiness of like especially like when you're in his work and just sort of like because this whole movie like is a quiet is a quiet movie it, there's not a lot of there's no explosions there's not a lot of not even a lot of shouting really it's just a lot of just like oh well i gotta do this now and i really like that he did a stripped down soundtrack as well but it's like a nice it's, it is just piano you know like it's very spare and it's very good he won david Shire won an oscar for normal ray i think I, I when i looked it up i think that's right but uh it's it's that's good because it's like a pretty quiet movie which makes sense because it's about a person who has to listen to a thing so you can't, you know, if you're sitting there listening to a tape over and over again, you can't have a lot of sound. It, clear, it clearly is inspired by Blow Up, which is funny because Brian De Palma ripped off Blow Up with Blow Out a few years after this, but like it already was with the conversation. <laughs> the conversation is basically Blow Up. And if you haven't seen Blow Up, it's great. It's, it's kind of similar in that this, this photographer is just taking a picture and then solves a mystery by kind of examining this picture and like going deeper and deeper into it over and over again, just like uh, Gene Hackman's character is by listening to this over and over again. And even Coppola said that his movie was 100% inspired by Blow Up. Like even he admitted it. And uh, and I guess he, like, like he said, this is a movie he's been talking about for a while. I guess he wrote the treatment for it back in the mid 60s, which makes sense. It's sort of like, this feels like a post Zapruder film, you know, kind of that sort of paranoia uh, movie. But then what's interesting is the movie came out the year that Nixon resigned because of Watergate and all that, all that stuff. So like, it's, it's, it's like, it's, it predicted this kind of world, <laughs> phone calls, and the government or whoever spying on you and people think that, that level of distrust and, and just sort of like, is someone listening? Is someone watching me? It's very, it's very odd that, yeah, this uh, movie comes out spring of 1974 and Nixon resigns like a few months later. So the Watergate scandal has been going on. And so that is on the minds of everyone of audiences watching this movie in 1974. They started shooting this movie in November 1972, which would have been 
know, a couple months after the break-in. I don't know the exact timeline on Watergate, but the whole explosion and the uh, of the scandal and the revelation that Nixon's been taping everybody and Congress needs to, uh, you know, listen to the tapes. That all happened while they were shooting this movie or in post-production, and it's just this. Uh, I don't know if serendipitous is the right word because there's nothing serendipitous about about the Watergate scandal aside from getting rid of Nixon. What was going on in American culture collided with the plot of this movie that was already mm-hmm. happening and then gave it a uh, more more like sociopolitical relevance to the people watching it at the time. And even now, it's I mean, it's in the 70s. It's about listening to tapes. So you would naturally think about Watergate watching this movie. I really like, too, the costume design. Like, it took me a while to realize that Gene Hackman's coat is a see-through coat. Because at first it looks like he's just wearing like a, like a Columbo-esque raincoat, but it really is just his frumpled suit underneath this see-through coat being height- visually heightened by this like see-through coat, which is really interesting. That's a really interesting choice. Of, I've never seen that in a movie. Yeah. Maybe like Blade Runner or something like that. Like a weird- it's a flimsy plastic raincoat that he wears constantly. He wears constantly no matter what the weather is. It is an odd choice, but it's one of those costume choices that defines the character, whether you see it and make the direct connection or you see it and make a subconscious connection, kind of like the way characters in Wes Anderson movies wear costumes that describe their their characters. Like Gene Hackman in the Royal Tannenbaums? I forgot that Terry Garr was in this movie. And it's funny that her and Gene Hackman were also in Young Frankenstein the same year. Oh, yeah, that was 1974, Young Frankenstein. Same year. So they clear, like, clearly they hit it off. Well, I guess they have no scenes shared in, in Frankenstein, but, you know, the after party. And actually, there's a lot of weird pairings in this movie where it's like, uh, you have, like, Harrison Ford is in this and Cindy Williams. They were both just in American Graffiti. Like, the, was that the year before? I think that was 73. Yeah, that was 73. Coppola took George Lucas's cast, basically. <laughs> And then you have, of course, uh, Robert Duvall and Harrison Ford and Frederick Forrest are going to show up again in Apocalypse Now. And this is sort of the beginning of Coppola using Frederick Forrest in a lot of movies. Like, you're, we're going to talk about him a lot. This is the first time, and, but not definitely not the last time. There's, there was a connection those guys had in the same way he had with, clearly, with Robert Duvall. This is the third time we've seen Robert Duvall now in a couple movie. Again, not the last time. So, like, there's definitely, he's kind of collecting his crew of people. Uh, John Cazale, uh, continuing his perfect filmography with film number two. It's funny, like, out of, like, he did, what, five movies? Is that right? Just five. And out of those five, three of them are Coppola movies. But they're all masterpieces. Because you have this, Godfather, Godfather 2, and then you have a Dog Day Afternoon and uh, Deer Hunter. End of the perfect run. And, and did you notice uh, in his office, there's a weird, like, cartoon of him above his desk? Did you see that? Like, like no. Works next to Gene Heckman. There's, like, a weird, like, it looks like one of those, when you go to a, a carnival and someone does, like, a crappy, exaggerated drawing of you or the beach or whatever. Like, there's one of John Cazale. I swear it's him over his desk. I hope that's just, like, something he brought from home being, like, I need this touched. That, that I'm, like, a real, like, this is like a lived-in little area. So I'm going to bring that carnival picture that I have of myself 
and hang it up. Or I'd like to think that Coppola or whoever the art director was was like, no, we like John go down San Francisco, go down to the pier. There's like a guy there just like, exaggerated drawing to people. Get your drawing done. I'll, I'll refund you. Come back, hang it up in your fake office. I wouldn't be surprised if that was something that happened because the production designer, Dean Tavalaris, who also did the production design for The Godfather, was a, a stickler for designing a room thoroughly. If there was a desk, there had to be stuff in the drawers. There had to be stuff everywhere. And Coppola was like, okay, fine. If that's the way you want it, fine. Like, fill out the room. Doubling your art direction budget. If you're like, man, the fridge needs to have food in it. <laughs> like, we need full wardrobe in that closet. That's when your budget just goes out of hand. So I wouldn't be surprised if Dean Tavalaris decided that there needed to be a carnival caricature of John Cazale above his office because that's something his character would have brought in to kind of like try and liven the place up. <laughs> because, I mean, he's not like the lively, outgoing person. He's just a normal person compared to Gene Hackman. He just seems like a normal guy. He wants to talk. He wants to have a conversation. He wants to hang out. And Gene Hackman <laughs> is just having none of it. I wonder if that was a big scheme of the art director to keep stuff and take it home. It was just like, yeah, we, we need to fill these drawers with office supplies. And then when shooting wrapped, he's like, now I have all these office supplies. <laughs> another interesting thing about, I mean, this is another movie where, again, Francis Ford Coppola is speaking to my people. With Godfather, he's speaking to my, uh, the Sicilian part of my family. And this one, he's speaking to the, I mean, I guess it's the same thing, the Catholic part of me. And this movie, a really, I feel really taps into a certain type of Catholic, which is the, the paranoid, obsessive uh, Catholic, which is what I am. I was raised Catholic. And I have horrible OCD. And just like it, it adds so much to Gene Hackman's character. Like we have an early scene of him going to confession and him just kind of freaking out that he knows that this job he did may hurt somebody again. But I think it's interesting to add that layer. And I'm sure this is something that Coppola maybe has from experience of just like that kind of like when you're raised Catholic, you have this idea of like the omnipresence of always being watched. <laughs> no matter what you could do, God's going to know. You, you want to masturbate? Better not. God's going to know you did it. And it, that, that kind of, like, you're always being watched. You're always being listened to. And, and, and that, that's definitely a part of this, this character. Gene Hackman's character is always worried, not just because his landlord's giving him a birthday cake and going to his apartment, but, like, he it just seems like a constantly paranoid, constantly worried. Like, he makes all his phone calls from a payphone, and he just is so distrustful of even his own girlfriend, played by Terry Gar. She says, like, when you come over, it's almost as if you want to catch me with somebody. Like, you don't trust me. It's not like you won't see me. But you're just paranoid because you're not there that something's going on. And the movie, I think, taps into that sort of obsessive, paranoid Catholic, which is what I am. I am an obsessive, paranoid Catholic. Or was a Catholic. And that's an interesting, specific type of person that you don't see in, uh, in movies, for sure. But it makes sense that Coppola, continuing his, uh, you know coverage of of my people would, would get into that <laughs> i am also a, a member of the church of rome and <laughs> relate very much to that yeah that paranoid kind of catholic oh and he does he has a thing for taking the lord's name in vain he uh scolds john Cazale for doing that at work and was like don't do don't say those things like don't you can't yeah. say those words around me because god is listening always it, it really captures the 
the, the Catholic guilt you have as a Catholic, you are the whole reason you're baptized when you're a baby is because you're born with original sin that you got from Adam and Eve who ate fruit from the tree of knowledge. So you're born and already there's something against you. You didn't do it, but hey, you have a mark against you. It's something that I relate to that is seems present on Harry Call is this guilt that well, I'm I'm not actually doing anything, but I'm still guilty of this. I just made the tapes. I was hired to do a job. I recorded them. I made the tapes. I turned them in. I'm not actually doing anything, but I still feel horrible guilt and shame, even though I have I have taken no action against these people. I really love this surveillance party scene. It's so f- I love that whole sequence of going to this convention, meeting Alan Garfield. And then them all just going and drinking into the night and just hanging out at work. There's something that feels so real about that part. It feels so much like, yeah, that's happened. Like every workplace will have their dopey, like, or if you're on a convention or you're traveling with work people, like, and here's the night where we all hang out and we're just going to drink a bunch and just get, maybe we'll kind of get into an argument, but not really, but then we'll be fine. And one of us will sleep with somebody. And, uh, and I, I really love that whole sequence and it's a pretty long sequence like that if you go from the beginning of the convention to the end of the party when the when he wakes up and the tape's stolen i mean maybe i'm wrong but it kind of almost feels like 20 minutes of the of the movie oh uh, you're you're definitely close to it. it it's a good big chunk of the movie and when you think that it's all one day it flows right from the convention into the the party at harry's workplace afterwards it really feels, it really feels like a play. Mm-hmm. It's all in one space, all in the warehouse. And the characters just kind of move around the space. And that makes you take it as not one long scene, but it feels like, you know, five little mini scenes just because of their, uh, their movements in the warehouse and okay these characters leave and now it's just Harry and the model or I don't know if she was supposed to be a, a prostitute in in his review Roger Ebert thinks that she's a prostitute but I think she was just a, a model she was like a model at the convention shame on you Roger Ebert don't don't yeah. put that on that lady come on yeah she can have fun too she's played by Elizabeth McRae the scene she has with Harry where they are often the empty part of the warehouse, which is most of it. And they're talking and he is, she's trying to get him to open up and he is asking her about, about his girlfriend that has broken up with him, Terry Gar. He's standing under one of the many columns and there are the overhead lights in the column uh, all over the warehouse. And it, it looks like they're outside. It looks like they're outside and these are like he's under a, a, a street lamp. And these lights are all like a series of, of street lamps. And because the space is so open and it just feels like they're outside. It's one of the few shots and a few scenes in the movie where the space feels like it's really opened up. What struck me while watching this again was, man... I wish they made movie f- for grown-ups now. Because this is like a movie for adults. Like, this is not a movie for children. It's not a movie for teenagers. This is like a grown-up for grown-ups, about grown-ups. A thing that is sadly lost to the past. 
movie history past is not a thing that exists anymore. But like, wouldn't it be great if they made a movie again about people in their forties and like that, and it's not there's nothing cool about it, and it's just about like you know their feelings and just like their life, and like yes, there's you know intrigue in this movie for sure, but it just feels very the whole movie just feels so mature, and I feel like it really is for Coppola like a step a big step up for him like considering you just made the godfather like you just made the godfather and yet somehow in my opinion you even went a step up from it from the godfather like you made a perfect what feels somewhat personal in a way like just like kind of an independent movie you know like and it, and it makes sense that it like he had a hard time making it and it's funny that like like he did what so many filmmakers wish they can do or say they want to do, but no, rarely do, except for maybe a few, like maybe like a Steven Soderbergh or Richard Linklater, where you make your big movie, and then instead of just like selling out and keeping making your big movie, you go back and make a small personal thing, an interesting little thing, like an exper almost experimental in a way, like he did with The Rainmaker after uh, uh, Finian's Rainbow. The Ring People. And, uh, or yeah, rain people. I'm sorry. What did I say? <laughs> Rainmaker. Rainmaker. That's later. Uh, <laughs> rain. The rain. The rain people after Finian's rainbow. Rain, rain, rain. But uh, the doing the uh, like this being and he's and like this is sort of a trend. We talked about this when we did rain people. But uh, he, this is a trend that that Coppola will continue for his whole career, his whole life. Like he's one of the few filmmakers able, or lucky to, I guess I should say to forever do, to go back and forth and do like your big thing, like movie for them, movie for yourself and like, and do that dance that people wish they could do, but usually don't. And he, and like, I think it's just great that he was able to fit this in. Like, cause he could have easily, yeah, gone right into Godfather too. And been like, sure, let's just keep the money train going. Let's keep the hit factory going. But instead did this little thing. And if this movie totally tanked, which it didn't, I think the movie did well. Right, it did moderately well. Its budget was like a million dollars. It grossed four million for a, movie, a small movie. That's great, and and for him to take that chance because he could, because he could, and he and he was like because this could have totally been a monumental failure, and maybe he would have never been allowed to make something. And who knows? Or maybe he would have. That I guess that's the position he was in. It was just sort of like, well, I made The Godfather, which is like the biggest money making movie of all time now at this point. So I can, what do I get to lose? I'll make my weird little movie. And either way, they're going to want me to make Godfather 2, whether this movie is nothing or something. So I just respect that he, and we're going to keep talking about this in every episode, like that he's still able, he's always been able to, he always goes back to that. And it's a complaint that I've heard him say in interviews about George Lucas of like, man, George Lucas was at one time, like one of my favorite experimental filmmakers. And then he made Star Wars and gave all that up. And would have been great if he was able to like take that Star Wars money or you know and 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 popularity and make some weirder smaller things. And that's the dream that Coppola lives and lived. It's all true. I feel exactly the same way. And I'm sure anybody that's watched all of these 1970 Francis Coppola movies would agree with. The Godfather is is a masterpiece. I don't know if it's Coppola's masterpiece. I think it is. Maybe I don't know. He, he's one of the few people that has more than one. But the, the conversation definitely feels more 
It's definitely a slow burn. It's this good movie that sneaks up on you and becomes a great movie. The last yeah. time I experienced that was uh, when I was watching The Irishman. When yeah. I was watching this movie, it's chugging along. It's a slow pace. It's about guys in their 40s, even though they're supposed to be in their 20s or whatever with The Irishman. And then all of a sudden, you don't even realize that you're caught up in this movie and that there's all these emotions that are suddenly now just in play on you at the same time. And then you realize that the conversation is like a psychological horror movie. Now that you've gotten to know Harry Call for you know, like an hour or so and seen how he tries to be cut off and removed from everything. He's this introvert, private person, but he also wants some kind of of a connection with people. And now we get to live out his nightmare, his ethical nightmare, something he's done will lead to the death of people. And also he is now being surveilled and spied on. And it all comes at once and his his Catholic guilt, you know, <laughs> blows up and just sort of all consumes him. It's brilliant. When he goes to the to the hotel room, he climbs under the sink in the hotel room and flushes a toilet to drill a hole so he can put a, a microphone and listen to what's going on in the next room. It's like already setting up that he's getting pretty, like a pretty low, uh, he's in a very low place. He's like, right, he's hanging out next to a toilet curled up under the sink with his headphones on, just trying to like not even necessarily intervene, but just find out like what's going to happen. And then when he starts to hear something, he just stops. He goes out onto the balcony, a bloody hand smears on the glass partition that separates the balconies. And then he gets scared and just hides under the covers on the bed. And stays there for what seems like hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's this glorious anticlimax. What's the hero of the movie going to do? Is he going to save the day? No, he runs and hides. <laughs> <laughs> and it's okay because he's not necessarily, he's not the hero of the movie, he's the main character. And this is a character study. We're watching what this person, what this kind of personality would do in this kind of situation when they are confronted with all of their fears and paranoias crashing down on them at the same time and destroying them psychologically and emotionally. So... Was this, so Godfather 2 came out also in 74. Yep. What, do you know what the time period is? Like which one was made first or what, what was he like filming one? Was he editing this one or like, what was the. Uh... So yeah, the, the timeline on this, it, it is important to know, just puts some stuff in perspective because it feels like all of these came out at the same time. So the Godfather was made in 1971. It was supposed to be released Christmas 71, but instead it comes out spring 72. And then there's a few month interval and he starts shooting the conversation in November, 1972. It wraps up in spring of 73. And then he goes right into pre-production on The Godfather and that shoots at the end of so was that yeah, Godfather Part Two? Was it in like early '73 when The Godfather won Best Picture? 
Yeah, um, the Oscars then were in like March of 73, I think. So that won Best Picture while they're making or finishing making the conversation. Yeah. Then he goes into God shooting Godfather 2 and then Godfather 2. So which one was released? And so they both came out safer. Which one was released first? The conversation was released in the spring. That's very interesting. So then does that mean, so the Oscars of 70, from 74, was conversation against Godfather 2 as best picture? You know it. Oh, man. Was he nominated yeah. for director twice? <laughs> no, only once for Godfather Part 2. Oh, that, what a sham. He should have, they should have like done it twice for one year. So the 1974, now we're, we're going to segue into the Oscars, my, uh, my favorite. 1974 is a good year for Coppola. It's a good year for the Oscars, too. The best picture nominees are Godfather Part Two, the winner, Chinatown, The Conversation, Lenny, and The Towering Inferno. That's a, that, what an amazing lineup of movies. What a very different lineup of movies. Yeah. Nominees for Best Director are Coppola, who wins for Godfather Part Two, Roman Polanski for Chinatown, Truffaut for Day for Night, Bob Fosse for Lenny, and John Cassavetes for Woman Under the Influence. God damn! Is 74, like, the pinnacle year? This, like, that's an amazing... That's an amazing lineup of amazing filmmakers all making, like, some of their most amazing movies. Like, that's crazy. Because I really feel like... And so many of those movies are iconic. Like, there could have been a, a, a separate universe where, like, Chinatown wins picture and director. Or, like, or Women of the Influence does. Or, like, even, like, Lenny, even Lenny's brilliant. Like, Lenny's a brilliant movie. Like, wow. That's amazing. I haven't seen uh, Lenny, though I, I will. It's on my list of stuff to get to. It's really good. It's really good. But, yeah, this is a... It's one of those rare years where you find that, like, the Chinatown didn't win Best Picture? Well, what did? Oh, The Godfather Part Two. Oh, okay. Well, that's, well, that's okay. Or The Conversation didn't win Best Picture? Or Lenny didn't win Best Picture? Like, Harry oh. Inferno didn't win Best yeah. Picture? <laughs> I've never seen The Towering Inferno. So that's I've never guess. seen that either. Yeah, 74 was a good year. Uh, Ellen Burstyn wins Best Actress for Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Amazing. That movie should have also been nominated for director. That's in a great movie. Who won actor? Best actor went to Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. Also great. A great the movie. Power. The people that say that, oh, like it should have been Jack Nicholson or Al Pacino, just haven't seen Harry and Tonto. It's a good great. movie. Art Carney is so good in it. Yes. So did the conversation win anything or was it just a highly nominated movie? It, it didn't win anything. It was not. It only had three nominations for picture, original screenplay, and sound. Why not actor? Who I, was nominated for actor? Because everyone else was, was like iconic, great. Because you have Jack Nicholson, Chinatown, and Jack Nicholson, Chinatown, Pacino, Godfather Two, Dustin Hoffman for Lenny, Albert Finney for Murder on the Orient Express, and the winner Art Carney. And that all great. Like, uh, even Orient Express is a great movie. It's just like, like, it's crazy to think of a time, I think it's been a while for our generation, when you have, like, a year where that many, not just good movies, but iconic movies, and movies, like, still today, we're thinking about and talking about all coming out in the same year. And I guess it makes sense, because you're in, like, 74. Like, you're in the middle of, like, the great, like, what many consider the greatest decade of movie making, of filmmaking. So, like wow like that's because like 
It's one of those years, too, that if I was alive then and any of those movies went picture director, I would have been very happy with that. Like, I would have been like, yeah, give it to Robert Polanski or, yeah, give it to, yeah, like, it's Bob Fosse. Like, these are, like, the great, these are some of the great filmmakers, you know? Wow. That, that's, and, and so Coppola wins director that year, but not for the conversation, but for the other movie. <laughs> he wins adapted screenplay again. For Godfather 2. He doesn't win original screenplay. That goes to Robert Town for Chinatown. Was uh, Greg Gatsby nominated for those Oscars as well? Uh, it won for costume design and it won for best original song score and adaptation or scoring adaptation. I don't know what that means. It's too specific. So Coppola really probably was invited to many Oscar parties that year. Like he probably had to decide which one to go to or party hopped is my yeah. guess. <laughs> like what, so you're an Oscar aficionado. Was there at this point a year where there was a director nominated twice in one year at this point? Or was like, cause I remember Soderbergh had that the year he did Brock of inner Brockovich and in traffic. Was that the first time that ever happened? Like, could that have been a possibility in 1974 or was that not a thing yet that anyone, I am not aware of it happening. I'm not sure if there were rules against it at the time. I don't think it happened at that time. I know uh, like a director winning back-to-back, getting back-to-back nominations is a big deal, and that doesn't really happen that often. Um, That hasn't come up in any of my Oscars trivia research. It makes you wonder, like, if he hadn't done Godfather 2, would the conversation also w- would have been nominated for director? Because, like, we have a double picture with that and the Godfather 2, both nominated for best picture, correct? Yeah. So, um, like, I, like I, I really bet, I really am putting my money on, if Godfather 2 did not exist, Coppola would have been nominated director for conversation. Like, definitely. Like, that would have been in the place of Godfather 2. Because, like, it's so good... And it's so well directed, like it's like very like clearly well directed that that definitely would have had the nomination. I don't exactly know how nominations worked at the time, but I know that since the 30s, the nominations committee was made up of members from the different unions, directors, writers, editors, actors, and such. And Today, you have the director's branch nominates the directors and editors nominate editors and actors nominate actors and everyone votes on the nominees. But that's why you will occasionally get a stray sole director nomination. Mm-hmm. Like uh, the one that comes to my mind, because like, yeah, is David Lynch from Mulholland Drive. Yeah. <laughs> that film only has one Oscar nomination and is for best director because the other people that do that job saw that movie and were like, that's a damn good job. David Lynch, <laughs> artist. It just shows that kind of arbitrary it is, because like, if you're nominated for Best Director, shouldn't that mean your movie's good enough to get more than just that? Because you did a good job as a director, so therefore you have an actor or an art director or somebody that worked with you that did a pretty good job. And like, and David, that wasn't the first time David Lynch did that because it's the same thing with Blue Velvet because he also got Best Director for Blue Velvet. And I think, is that the only nomination that movie got or did that? No, I think that's the only nomination that got. David Lynch has like this big trip trivia fact 
nominated twice for Best Director without the movie being having any other nominations. And I'm guessing Elephant Man was also a Best Director and Picture. Yes. Yeah. And that's the only time. But it's a testament that he's like a director's director, that like directors appreciate David Lynch, but maybe other people don't quite get it. And this list, Truffaut, Cassavetes, these are Bob Fosse and, you know, Polanski, uh, you know, you can separate the art from the artist, that whole thing. These are guys that are just really fucking good at their jobs. Legendary. Like, these are filmmakers that I, I'm guaranteed each have more than one book written about. You know, like, yeah, like, like filmmakers whose names define a style of filmmaking. Yeah, very much. And it's just crazy that it's all in one year. Yeah, like, so, I wonder what each of those directors thought was the best director. Like, when ego aside, like, if you said, hey, Roman Polanski, 74, who's your, who's your guy? Who's your lady? Who's your person? What do you, you want to pick? Like, who would they? Uh, who do you think Truffaut would have picked? Truffaut being such a film lover. Do you think he would have gone with Chinatown or do you think he would have gone with Conversation? Or I think Truffaut would have said Conversation was the best directed movie of 74. That feels like something Truffaut would have appreciated. I, I agree. I agree. Uh, so, so Paramount, they had just, and the Oscars, of course, not, not the end-all be-all of anything, and it's largely arbitrary. But uh, Godfather 2 would have been Paramount's big push for the Oscars, because Godfather 1 won, and so now here's Godfather 2. The conversation is also Paramount, and it also gets in there with Godfather 2 and you feel like Paramount since they already had the Godfather which was like an easy like Oscar bait they didn't need to push another of their movies so I feel like the conversation made it in there got the nominations it got on its own merit the fact that it has so few means that it was so well regarded the voting members of the Academy felt we have to nominate it for like these things, at least it has to get some recognition. Is this the only time on our podcast where we have two movies he directed in one year? Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. amazing. What a year. Like, like it's got to be amazing to wake up on like January 1st, 1975 and be like, you know what? I don't have to do shit because I did the conversation and Godfather 2 in the same year. So, you know what? Like, fuck you. I, I'm going to go make Apocalypse Now. <laughs> Like, it's got to be, like, like you got to, like, it's, it's amazing because, like, Coppola is only direct, he hasn't directed a lot of movies, really. Like, this is going to be, in the long run, not a very long podcast for someone who's had a, you know, lifelong career. Like, he's only directed 30-something movies, which is actually pretty small. Like, most people's filmographies gets, gets large. And he, to make two masterpieces in one year, is amazing because like you gotta assume that while he's making the conversation he's kind of in his mind thinking about godfather 2 and like or in godfather 1 and what you just went through and to be able to pull off that that kind of like amazing you know feat of making two great movies in one year is a rare is a rare thing for a filmmaker the only other people i can think of is spielberg who did schindler's list and jurassic park both in 93 both amazing and Soderbergh with uh, Traffic and Aaron Brockovich in that year. Who, like, who else? Like, yeah, like, to, to, do that, to do that is, it's hard enough to make one good movie. Like, most people can't even do that. So to do two and one is, is amazing. It's incredible. Well, I guess Coppola did Outsiders and Rumblefish in the same year. So 
and those movies are kind of worked together as one in a way. It's crazy to think that he, that Godfather 2, in a way, still kind of overshadows this movie because that movie's so loved and considered like the best sequel ever. But even with it, this, it's like a slight overshadow. Like even with that, people still love this movie. It, 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 it's a gem. It's not like a hidden gem. Like it's there. You just have to look past. It's sandwiched between two Godfathers, you know, two of the big seminal films of the 70s of film history and in between is this little personal movie both personal for the filmmaker and personal that it's about one person just about what they're experiencing i feel i feel like this is a great movie that should be shown to like film students like it's oh absolutely you could write and as i'm making notes i had like three pages of notes on like subtext and themes and stuff that we can't really get into because we have to have like dinner and we have families to get back to and stuff (laughs) yeah you could write any number of deeply analytical essays about the conversation about the about religion about privacy about surveillance about about like the need to be uh the need to be alone but the want to also be you know social Mm -hmm. about how you can be so good at your job that it means you can be easily fooled. <laughs> Harry Call is someone that is so well-regarded, even though he's so private, but he goes to this convention where he's listed as one of the big names that will be there. And he goes and people just know who he is by his name. And one guy is desperate to get him to say, to take this like recorder <laughs> or whatever, just so we can say that you use it. Or, or can we get a picture with you holding it? Like your name would really do a lot for, for, for our company. And he just, you know, shies away. I love, I love that little touch of you're a big name in that community, in the people listening to other people community. You're a superstar. <laughs> 99% of people don't know who the heck you are, but in the surveillance community, you are Michael Jackson. <laughs> <laughs> so good. That's such a good touch. Yeah. And then his rival, Moran, is able to bug him without him knowing, hey, Harry, here, have a free pen, and puts a pen in his pocket. And then that's how he later <laughs> in the bit, uh, in the long after-party scene records Harry talking intimately to Margaret or Meredith, to Ellen McRae, to Elizabeth McRae. And then he plays the tape back as like a joke, a prank, and not, hey, here's your secrets, but just, I was able to bug you. And that is the final straw for Harry. He breaks the pen, tells everyone to get out. And his friends, like you said, they like, they pull pranks on each other, but there's no hard feelings. Just like, Harry, I'm sorry, I didn't mean anything by it. All right, all right. And so they leave, and Kazale leaves, and then he has to come back to get his coat, which I love. It's one of those little things that's, yeah someone would forget their coat and then have to come back. And it's not a big deal. It's not a big moment, but he has to walk through the frame again and then walk back. And then you hear off camera, like, Harry, sorry, it wasn't a big deal. And mad props to like, as you mentioned, Ellen Garfield is so funny, so good. And he's, he's such a good, I feel he's a very underrated character actor. I've always been a big fan of his. I love him in busting. I love him in get crazy. He's a very dependent, he recently passed away and he's just like always one of those great dependable, it's that guy, like, oh, it's that guy. Like you might not know his name, but you're like, oh, that's the bald, angry guy and, and such and such. And uh, 
And he's really good. It's funny because like you can't think of a more opposite character than the Gene Hackman character. Like he is such an obnoxious, outgoing salesman. He does this whole show at the con- at the con- uh, surveillance convention of like, hey everybody, come around, look at this. Like he's very, you know, he's got that P.T. Barnum thing going. And it's funny to see him, you know, juxtaposed uh, with the Gene Hackman character. And so much of that great long scene at the office party is is that is Alan Garfield's character obsessed with how did Gene Hackman's person do this one bug? Like, how did you bug these people? Like, I think I think they're on a boat or something. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. His whole life trying to figure out like how did you do that? Like, and he's also like a big money making, and that's why John Cazale does it work with him. He's like, oh, this guy. He's like the big guy. And I think, am I right that at that convention scene, Gene Hackman goes to visit some other guy and the guy's like, oh, that guy ripped off my thing. Don't tell him anything. Like, yeah, yeah. Off. And, <laughs> and that's the introduction to that character is this sort of wise guy. You can't trust him sort of person. If Gene Hackman told him how he did it, then Alan Garfield's going to go and you know, patent that and sell it, you know, and make money off of mm-hmm. it. It's such a weird little character. And that character is only there in that one part. But it, like, it, it pulls so much character out of the Gene Heckman character. Like, it really, it, like, because of him being around, it, le- it lets you learn so much about his past. I really wanted to talk about one moment in that scene where Alan Garfield's trying to figure out how, how Gene Hackman recorded the conversation at the beginning of the movie. John Cazale just randomly pushes play on the tape and plays it for everyone. And, you know, Gene Hackman's very upset. And then he sets up the the situation for Alan Garfield. Here's this, how, how would you do it? And he's trying to guess, well, first of all, you need, you need multiple angles. Like, uh, like you bug their clothes easy. Like, no, you can't bug the clothes. You don't know what they'll be wearing. And he's trying to figure it out. And he says, well, you would do this and you would have to do it in four passes. And then Harry pokes out from behind his workstation, really excited and says, I did it in three. And it's like <laughs> the only scene where you see his character really come to life and start to enjoy something where he then explains how he did it and the technology he used. Do you use that thing? Let me see it. And he snatches back the, uh, the microphone he used and locks it away. It's so good. It's such a, it's like, there's not a wasted moment in this movie. It's so tight. Such a good, tight filmmaking. And let's talk about Harrison Ford for a second. He is in a, what would many consider a, 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 you know, probably a role that's probably isn't even that written in the script, but he brings so much to it. And supposedly what I read was that he showed up saying, my character's gay and this is what this is. And what's funny is when I watched it with my wife the other night, she picked up on that. She's like, is Harrison Ford supposed to be gay? And I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, I guess I have a broken gaydar. But, uh, but she was like, he's gay, right? And I'm like, I don't know. And then I read further about the movie. And if no, Harrison Ford showed up saying, I want to play this character as gay. Why? I don't know. But it definitely is, it was effective, I guess. It worked. But he is really good. It's a very small part it gets a very you know like it could have been a part that anyone could have played and has been like i'm just this in between guy but he kind of brings a little bit of a mischievous so there's something like you, you can tell from minute one with when he shows up that there's like you don't quite trust him that there's something going on i don't know if it's a sort of the the way 
that you have your handsome Harrison Ford, but you know, he's being a little bit mysterious. Uh, but he's really good. Like he's probably on screen for maybe five minutes total when you add it all up, but it's effective. He's really good. You, you definitely pay attention to him when he's around. You're absolutely right on all accounts. I listened to Coppola's commentary last night and he said that in the script, the character was just a functionary. There wasn't really anything to him one way or the other. It was just, he was just the go-between. So all the nuance and the personality of that character, him being shady and dubious and him being kind of dangerous, really, all came from Harrison Ford just deciding, well, here's what I'm going to do with the character. He even got to pick out like the kind of suits that he wanted to wear and this tight sweater he wears. It's all from Harrison Ford and it's great to see him really act yeah. that way of playing an antagonist. Harrison Ford is the archetypal hero. He's Indiana Jones, he's Han Solo, he's you know the president that punches people off of his air, off of his airplane. His only role as a villain really is what in what lies beneath. Spoiler on that. It's 21 <laughs> years old. Uh, so to see him in these early films like American Graffiti, he's I guess the villain of that movie. But he's definitely a scoundrel in American Graffiti. Yeah, um, and here he's the one that definitely lets you know there is something going on with these tapes. It's not just a normal guy wants to find out if his wife is cheating job. There's something big is going to happen from these t- because of these tapes, because of the way Harrison Ford acts. And like you said, like you don't know at the end whether he knew all along or wanted Robert Duvall to die or, like, or whether he's just so in the middle, he just will just go to whichever side is the winner. You know, like when at the end, he's a totally in support of Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest. Is he the mastermind behind this? Like, you don't know. You could certainly read into that, that he is somehow behind this, playing this two side. What, what we talked about, it's like, it's a testament that Harrison Ford is a really good actor. I think we take that for granted. I think we, like Han Solo and Indiana Jones and even Jack Ryan are such big, iconic characters that we don't think of him as an actor. Like, I think that happens to a lot of people. I think that happens to like Johnny Depp and other people were like, or Tom Cruise or Denzel Washington were where you're so big, we don't think of you as acting. Like, we don't think that you, it's not we don't think that you don't know how to do it, but there's such a presence around you as a person that we don't think of you as being like a good actor in a weird way. Like, does that make sense? Like, I don't know. If I'm yeah, we think that. of them as a, as a person, as a movie star first. And yeah. then yeah. like, I'm going to go watch Harrison Ford pretend to be a CIA analyst. But like, it takes a good actor to make an Indiana Jones and make a Han Solo, and we don't really think about that. Like, we just kind of take it for granted. We just take advantage of it and be like, oh yeah, you know, we just love him forever, great. You know, it's kind of how we think about Steven Spielberg as a filmmaker, just like water, just like, yeah, that's just a thing that's just part of our life, but you don't like, wait a minute, there's a reason for that, and that reason is they're very talented. The reason why it seems so, just it's just so obvious, it's like the Beatles. It's like, it's so obvious, but you don't pause for a second and be like, wait a minute, the Beatles are the Beatles because they're that good. Like that's like we don't acknowledge how good they are. That's ridiculous because we just take it for granted. We're just like, well, that's yes, yeah, the fucking Beatles. But it's like, no, no, like it's hard to be the Beatles. Like it's hard to be Harrison Ford. And in this movie, you're seeing him. The fact that it was a not even an underwritten character, it was just a person written in a script to connect information. Basically, is what Coppola is admitting to. But because he put Harrison Ford and Harrison Ford made it 
a memorable character. So I'm watching it, and at the end, I'm thinking about that character. And if it was just some other person, you know, we wouldn't, have, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. But because he is so good, because Harrison Ford is a real actor, is a really good actor, he, he brings it up. He makes it a truly memorable little bit in a movie uh, where that character could have totally disappeared into. Like, it could have totally paid attention to Gene Hackman and Robert Duvall and whoever this other guy is and whatever. But, like, because of it, he's, he's a part of it. He's part of the conversation. The conversation. One thing, another thing I want to make sure to talk about is is Walter Murch, the sound designer and like something supervisor. He got a weird credit on this movie because he was not in any of the unions. But what he actually did on the movie was he was the editor and the sound mixer. But because he wasn't in a union, the editor's union said, well, his credit can't, he can do whatever you want him to do, but he can't be credited as an editor. So he's credited as sound designer and like sound montage or something. But he edited the movie because Coppola's schedule was so tight. Right after they finished shooting this movie, Coppola goes to working on The Godfather Part Two. He had not written the screenplay for Godfather Part Two yet. What? Yeah. Wait, did he rush the screenplay for Godfather 2 and Samo make an amazing movie? Uh, we'll find out next time. <laughs> but yeah, he said um, in the commentary, he mentions that this, is like, that this is his favorite of his movies. But when he remembers making it, he does not remember having a good time. The same with like The Godfather, the same with Apocalypse Now. You know, there's a documentary about how difficult it was to make Apocalypse Now. It was not a good time, but like the result, he was happy with the result, but the time. And in fact, if, if we line up the dates right, I think he was also writing The Great Gatsby. <laughs> and then having, thinking about The Godfather 2, but he had not written it. He finishes shooting the movie and then basically hands it over to Walter Murch to do all the post-production on it. And Walter Murch also has a commentary on the conversation DVD or Blu-ray, which I highly recommend listening to. You did two commentaries on this? You listened to both? Yeah, I listened to both. Thank you, COVID, for the time that we have. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I loved it. I loved it. It reminded me of being in college. I'd just listen to DVD commentaries, and then people would, would marvel. Marvel, how do you know so much about movies? Because I'm the only person that listens to DVD commentaries. <laughs> so Walter Merch would edit the film and put together pieces and then show it to Coppola and Coppola would give notes and then go back to working on Godfather 2. And one of the things that uh, really proves that film comes together in the editing room is there was a, not a lot, but an important amount of ADR done on this movie, additional dialogue recording, recording lines after the fact where Walter Murch realized if we let people in now on the fact that Harry did a job in the past that led to people's deaths, it'll have a further impact. And that's in the confessional scene mm. where the camera pushes in, uh, the camera pushes in as he's confessing his sins. And in the screenplay, he just confesses to a bunch of little trifling, what would be like venial sins. If you're Catholic like me and know the different levels of sins, venial is in the middle. The camera pushes in and then his Gene Hackman's face is out of focus and we're seeing the face of the priest 
through the uh, you know the little uh, lattice, and he realized, well, Harry should mention briefly that something did you know something he did in the past led to people's deaths, maybe, and that might happen again. And so they were able to re-record that just because you don't see Gene Hackman's lips moving because of the the way they shot that particular scene. That wasn't the intention. It's just one of those things that happened fortunately and they were able to take advantage of in the editing room. Fun fact, that priest played by Gene Hackman's brother. Huh. He's not in a lot of movies, but in that movie, that's his bro. That's uh, I didn't Richard, know that. I know that. Richard Hackman. <laughs> well, then Richard Hackman also appears again in the movie at the end as one of the security guards that carries him out of the corporate office building at the end. Did you recognize him by his voice? <laughs> no, that was that was something Coppola pointed out in the commentary. Like that's Gene's brother. What a good brother. Anyway, so it's uh it's interesting and and great to see that one of Coppola's key collaborators throughout his career was his was a, a sound guy, sound editor, sound mixer. You know, it's important. Like in and Coppola being sort of a very in tune, one of the most in tune filmmakers and like, you know, he opened up your own studio and stuff. You're going to know the importance of all these things. Walter Murphy is the most famous sound guy, right? That he's the guy. He's the only guy. Like what other sound people whose names, you know, nobody, it's only him. (laughs) Did he, he did, did he do American Graffiti? Yes. Because that, like, because, like, it would, I think that's kind of the movie that made him in a way. Like, that movie is known for its, the way, like, the, you hear the music playing on everybody's uh, radios and the cars driving around. And I feel like that's when I first was aware of Walter Mertz. And uh, I think he wrote a book, which seems correct in my mind, <laughs> that Walter Mertz wrote a book about his whole career. You see the relationship between Coppola and George Lucas at this time, where he's taking to the actors from George Lucas's movie, you're, you're using the sound guy. Like there's definitely in a way a friendship that you can read into of like, oh, this guy made a movie before. Even Haskell, Vex- Haskell Vexler shot American Graffiti and that's who Coppola started out with on the conversation. So it's like, there's definitely this sort of like, you're my buddy, you know, like, like let's, we're gonna do a little bit of sharing. These like, yeah, California filmmakers. Um, <laughs> We should do a George Lucas podcast. It'd only be, you know, like four movies or five movies. But, uh, <laughs> and we'd get to talk about his best movie. The Phantom American Menace. Graffiti. <laughs> wait, wait, what? Oh, we're in disagreement on this. <laughs> it's just a, a little bit of a window into that relationships between all these great films. And I guess, I think I read somewhere that this movie was produced sort of by this group. It was like William Friedkin and Peter Bogdanovich and Francis Ford Coppola made, like somehow they made some company or, uh, you know what I'm talking about? Yes, you are correct. There was this glorious time in the 70s when directors were at the forefront of filmmaking, but there was an even more glorious time, very short-lived, when there was this thing called the director's company which was formed by Paramount. It was Coppola, Friedkin, and Bogdanovich. And basically the head of Paramount, well, the owner of the company that owned Paramount decided, you know what, these young guys, they're making these movies I don't understand, but audiences love them, critics love them. So 
you will each make three movies as long as they don't cost more than this. It can be about whatever. And you have to make them within a span of six years. And the director's company was Francis Coppola, Peter Bogdanovich, who had uh, just done The Last Picture Show, and William Friedkin, who had just done The French Connection. And they could make whatever they wanted. And so Coppola finally gets to make his passion project, The Conversation. That's the first movie produced for this new director's company. Bogdanovich makes Daisy Miller, which I think is a good movie. It was not, it's not a big, it was not a big hit. It's definitely easier to watch now if you've already seen some Merchant Ivory movies. Because this was just before anyone was really making period costume dramas. It's based on a Henry James novel or short story or something. And it's okay, but he had just, he did Last Picture Show and then What's Up Doc, his take on a a, a modern you know, a 70s version of a screwball comedy with Barbara Streisand. She's very good in it. And William Friedkin did nothing for the director's company. (laughs) And basically, I mean, the conversation did okay. It cost a million. It made four. Daisy Miller did not make a lot of money. So then the company folded immediately. Why didn't Friedkin do anything? Because he just made The Exorcist and had so much money. He's just like, I don't need this. Like, I'm going to wait until Sorcerer three years later basically like i think sorcerer this is detailed in easy riders raging bulls by peter biskind i highly recommend it the book or the documentary i think i've recommended it before but yeah freaking had like ideas for his director's company movies and so yeah nothing happened and i i I was certain (laughs) that sorcerer would have been his director's company movie because it's a movie that I can only imagine you would make you would be able to make if someone decided, hey, make whatever you want. I don't care. It's like, eh, like you're crazy. The tangerine dream, the uh, the truck on the bridge, this that whole sequence with the Swain uh, bridge. Like that movie's so good. Well, why are they driving a truck of nitroglycerin through the jungle? It's a movie. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> Anyways. Anyway, so I guess William Freakin did not like the conversation that he thought it was too much of a ripoff of Blow Up and was just sort of like dismissive of it, which seems very William Freakin. Like, I feel like we're in the cockiest of periods of William Freakin, which he now admits to as an older man of like, yeah, I was an asshole. I told Alfred Hitchcock off, but you know, I'm going to tell Francis Coppola that uh, conversation is a ripoff of Blow Up, so I don't care about your movie, even though I helped produce it. The director's company is a great idea, and then it just didn't it didn't pan out. But what a you know what if it had a, if it had panned out that that would have been great. And you know it was very much in the spirit of like United Artists, founded yeah. in the twenties by Chaplin and Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks and someone else, D.W. Griffith. So yeah. we'll get to make what we want, and we'll distribute it ourselves. And then they we're going to bring back United Artists at the end of the, of the 2000s and Tom Cruise was going to be the head of it. And then their first movie was Lions for Lambs and that closed. It was like the Happy Madison of its time. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, is Happy Madison the successful version of that? Because that's like, yeah, a group of friends making whatever they want to make. Yeah. I think, I think that new David Spade, Rob Schneider, Netflix movie, The Wrong Missy, I, I 
think that's a Happy Madison movie. So like they've been going, they've been going strong and paying for their vacations to make whatever movies those groups of friends want to do. Like they're the only success story of that. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. You're right. Even DreamWorks, which was Spielberg, Katzenberg and Geffen. Like we're going to do it our way. Eventually that closed. That's sadly. Of the power, the secret power of Adam Sandler and his pals. Wow, Adam Sandler doing what Coppola, Bogdanovich freaking couldn't. Yeah, you want to go to Hawaii with you know, your pals? Do it. Like, we'll pay for it, and it will be a hit. He figured out the key. He figured out, Adam Sandler figured out the key that even Coppola and Charlie Chaplin could not crack. A testament to his brilliance, and I mean that. <laughs> so, what else? Is there anything else to unpack on the conversation? Um, nothing to unpack, but two things I want to make sure we mention is that this guy Moran has a phone in his car in the 70s. Big deal for 1974 yeah. or 72 when they made this movie. And it's a, it's like a handset phone that he picks up and he calls in a license, the license plate number of this Mustang that just cut them off, and he calls it in. Is that a fictional thing that Coppola made up, or did that actually exist? Because you had your, like, army foams, clearly, by this time, where you cranked the thing, and you hmm. had a phone that worked. I um, don't know. A lot of this stuff, because they had, a, uh, they had an advisor whose name escapes me at the moment. I apologize. They had an advisor who was actually one of the people called in to examine the Nixon tape with the 18 minute gap on it. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. And he advised him on a lot of stuff, advised him that the best sound people make all their own equipment. So it would look very low tech and crappy because they were just making it out of whatever they had. It wouldn't look sci-fi and futuristic. Mm -hmm. So that's why I mean, you think like, okay, this is a 70s, so it's going to look like old fashioned. But even for that, it looks very low tech, low budget and crappy. The other thing I want to mention is that his name, Harry Call, is spelled C-A-U-L, which was a typo. His name was supposed to be just C-A-L-L. But Coppola was dictating the screenplay like, you know, into a, a tape recorder and then a secretary would type it up and she misspelled it one time. And Coppola realized that C-A-U-L is the name for... It's a disease or um, that... It's a... That, uh, the face thing that... Uh, it's a membrane. It's like the membrane of a newborn doesn't burst. And oh. so it's born with like the membrane still and the doctor has to puncture it and take the baby out of that. And it's supposed to be like a sign that the this child will go on to greatness like Caesar. Julius Caesar was born with a call and it's a transparent membrane and he wears a transparent raincoat. Yeah. God damn it. We're on to this. We know what we're talking about. That's one of those things like if you were a film student writing a paper on this and you picked up on that and then at, in his office there's a plastic partition that he'll stand behind when Moran is confronting him about, no, you bug these people, you bug this guy, you turned in the tapes, and then that guy's family wound up dead and he hides behind this plastic partition uh, behind a call. Brilliant. Like we said, this should be studied in film school. Like this is a film school number one 
like this in Battleship Potemkin. Like that's that's all you need. Yes, we can finally get rid of the Birth of a Nation. All versions of Birth of a Nation. Any movie made under that title can be gotten rid of and replaced with the conversation. You're right. Both version, <laughs> both movies called Birth of a Nation, not good for very different reasons. Well, I'm excited because the next episode is Godfather 2, of course, if, like, if you haven't picked up on that from listening to this two, four-hour, five-hour podcast. And I'm very excited to do Godfather 2. I haven't seen that. I've only seen that movie once, and it's been a long time. And it's the one that's considered the, be- the best sequel of all time. Like, it's number one to most everybody. And uh, I remember my initial reaction was I didn't care for it as much as the first one, so I wonder if I'll still feel that way, or now that we're going through this Coppola trajectory, if I will be like, oh, no, this is like the much better movie. So I'm very excited to do that in a, in, uh, next week. I went up and down on The Godfather 2. I saw it when I was in high school for the first time and thought it was better than Godfather 1. And I watched it again in college and thought that just the De Niro scenes were good. And the last time I saw it, which was, I don't know, at the start of the last decade, maybe, uh, I actually decided I didn't like it at all so i you're saying that's coming up yeah i'm in a different state of my life so we'll see how i take it this time well i'm pumped and big shout out to covid for allowing us to move more quickly through this podcast i feel like this is the fastest we've ever done this like when we did the Shyamalan one it took a little bit of time and even the beginning of the coppola took a bit of time but now that we have literally Nothing else going on in our lives other than we have our no jobs. <laughs> watch a movie and you know rant about it on the internet. Uh, well, they is, took our jobs and left us with a podcast. This is what cult. This is where culture is at now, and you know what? I'm okay with that. We're we're really speeding through the podcast, um, and hope it brings us a lot of joy and comfort to be able to get together and talk about movies. So hopefully, it brings you some comfort. Yeah. And, like, the world is a crazy place right now with COVID and Black Lives Matter and all this stuff. And uh, we hope that, like, after your long day of uh, protesting or, you know, the struggles you go through, that you can enjoy a brief moment of us just dicking around, talking about movies. Yeah. So I'm pumped. Godfather 2, bring it. Let's do it. I'm excited to hear what you think. Because I also was kind of underwhelmed when I saw it for the first time. So... Maybe we will love, we'll love it now. Who knows? Tune in. We'll, we will tell you. All right. We are on Twitter at the Director's Wall. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at AJGO85. It's a bunch of letters and numbers. I'm also on Letterboxd <laughs> under the same AJGO85. You can email us direct at uh, directorswall at gmail.com. And yeah, everyone, stay safe. Uh, stay active and the stuff that you know the country that the country really needs right now um, the world needs needs, yeah the world needs stuff we should have had for the last 50 or 100 years Uh, yeah anyway not to make it not to date the podcast uh we will see you next time
We're just, we're living in 1974 for the next few weeks, and that's okay. I'm okay with that. Let's get our president out of the White House, and it's over. Yeah. <laughs> in 1974, you know, I'm not at all referring to it now. I'm not yeah, no, Nixon, Nixon, yeah. Nixon, yeah. Fuck that guy. <laughs> all right. Thank you for listening, and we will catch you next time for the continuing saga of Michael Corleone. <laughs>